0: Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast, with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we talked about how Harold Bluetooth, the Viking king who united Denmark, thought he also had the right to rule Norway because he'd paid for his nephew's repeated and frankly rather inept attempts at snatching the country away from Håkon the Good. Once Håkon the Good actually died from his wounds after the Battle of Fityar, Harold Bluetooth's oldest surviving nephew, also named Harald, became king of Norway. But despite what his uncle Harald back in Denmark wanted, Norwegian King Harald preferred to rule Norway alone, without avuncular intervention, especially after he both removed his uncle's vassal petty kings from eastern Norway and managed to take control over the lucrative trade route from the Arctic down the Norwegian coast. This did not please Uncle Harald Bluetooth back in Denmark. Bluetooth was so unpleased that he let Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson conspire to kill Harald Greycloak, and take his place as the ruler of Norway. Harald Bluetooth hoped that the Jarl would be more accommodating toward the Danish king. He wasn't. Jarl Håkon tricked Harald Bluetooth out of having to pay taxes in, to Denmark, and Harold, in return, forced Håkon to be baptized. Their relationship never really recovered from that, and eventually it even led to open war. But in the end, it wasn't the Danes who would bring about the end of Jarl Håkon's reign. Instead, he lost control over a domestic rebellion and was eventually captured and executed by a rich young man claiming to be Olav Tryggvason, the child who Gunhild, mother of kings, had tried to kill, but who had been smuggled out of the country many years previously. Now, he was back to rule not only his father's petty kingdom in eastern Norway, but all of the country. But he faced numerous challenges. Not only was he a Christian, zealously trying to convert the skeptical Norwegians, but he also had to defend his country's independence against continued danish attempts to reduce norway to a vassal state under the kingdom of denmark today we'll look at how well Olaf tryggvason managed to handle these challenges episode 25 a christian viking So, according to the story Olav Tryggvason liked to spread, he was the son of Tryggve Olavsson, one of Harald Bluetooth's vassals in the east of Norway. You might remember that I mentioned that Tryggve was killed by Harald Greycloak's brother Gudrød Eriksson in order to shore up the Eriksson's direct rule over Norway. After Tryggve was killed, Gunhild, mother of kings, did her best to track down his newborn son and have him killed as well. Leaving potential pretenders alive was not a good idea and she was afraid that this particular child might come back and stir up trouble. But Trygves young wife, Astrid, managed to escape with her son, Olav. And now here he was, back in Norway, stirring up trouble. But as I said, this is the story Olav Trigva's liked to spread. It's possible that it's entirely made up. Maybe Olav wasn't related to Trigva Trigua Olav's son at all and instead was just some random guy who took the chance to become king of Norway. Nobody knows for sure anymore, but what we do know is that Olaf's way to the Norwegian throne is quite an unlikely story. Some might even say a little too unlikely. According to Olaf's version of events, his mother's foster father, a guy with the charming name Thoralf Lausbeard, helped Astrid and her newborn son Olaf to flee across the border to Sweden. They stayed there for a few years until they decided that they should decamp for Gordariki, where Astrid's brother, that is Olaf's uncle, was a big shot at King Valdemar's court. As Thoralf, Astrid and Olaf were crossing the Baltic Sea, the ship they were traveling on was attacked by Vikings, who did what Vikings normally do in situations like these. The surviving passengers were taken as slaves. Both Astrid and Olaf survived, but they were separated and sold to different masters. Thoralf Lousbeard wasn't so lucky. He was killed and thrown overboard right in front of little Olaf. Olaf was traded for a goat and then for a cloak and seemed to be doomed to a life of domestic slave service for the rest of his life. But six years later, in the year 977, his uncle Sigurd, the big shot at King Valdemar's court, happened to recognize little Olaf when he passed him in the street. I'm not entirely sure how Sigurd could recognize a nine-year-old boy who he hadn't seen for at least six years and probably longer, if ever even, as his lost nephew Olav. But he did. Somehow. Or at least that's what Olav would later claim. Sigurd purchased his nephew and brought the boy with him to Holmgård, where he worked for King Valdemar. Not so long after that, Olav happened to pass through a market square in Holmgård when he recognized the Viking who'd separated him from his mom and who'd killed Thoralf Lausbeard, Olaf Tryggvason walked over to the Viking and buried his axe deep in the man's head. You may think that little Olaf was insi- entirely justified in killing the man who'd caused him so much suffering. You might even be right thinking that. But the problem was that according to the local laws, The market square was a safe space where it was forbidden to kill anyone, just like at the thing or in a holy place. If you spilled blood on the market square, you would be sentenced to death. But once again, Olav was saved by his uncle Sigurd. He asked the queen to save the little boy. The queen was charmed and Olav was even offered a job. So now he started to work for King Valdemar, just like his uncle. After a few years in King Valdemar's service, Olav Tryggvason decided it was time to move on. This decision may or may not have been influenced by rumor that he was having an affair with the queen, his employer's wife. Olav spent some time raiding on the Baltic Sea, which is interesting considering his personal childhood experiences with raiders on the Baltic Sea. When traveling through Vendland on the southern coast, the queen there became besotted with him and he fell for her too. So he decided to stay and marry her. And maybe he would have made Vendland his permanent home, but after three years, the queen died and Olaf was absolutely crushed. He had to leave to stop thinking about his dead wife. Olaf handled his grief by going back to raiding and pillaging. One day, he happened to come across a fortune teller who told him that great things were installed for him, but not right away. In fact, the fortune teller said that Olaf was actually just about to have a decidedly unpleasant experience. He would soon be attacked and gravely injured. He would almost die, but on the seventh day, he'd recover. All this happened exactly as the fortune teller had said, so when Olaf did recover, he went back and asked how the fortune teller had known. He told him that Jesus had explained what would happen, and Olaf was so impressed that he agreed to be baptized. After that little episode, Olaf Tryggvason went to England, where he married again. He also continued to raid and pillage, even though he was now a Christian. Apparently, these raids were noteworthy for their brutality and gruesomeness, even compared to other Viking raids. Sometimes, Olaf raided together with the Danish king, Sven Forkbeard, the one who toppled and replaced his father, Harold Bluetooth. Remember? Olaf and Sven not only conducted successful raids, they also managed to squeeze considerable amounts of extortion money from the English, so-called guilt, that we've talked about in a previous episode, they received literally tons of silver in Danegeld. They split their ill-gotten gains evenly between them, and this partnership might have continued for many years if it weren't for the fact that Olav got a little greedy. One time, he went to England and demanded Guilt without bringing Sven Forkbeard along. His threats were credible and his demands were met, so he could sail away with an enormous amount of silver, and he didn't have to share any of it with anyone. When Sven heard about it, he was enraged. He felt like Olav had betrayed him by going raiding on his own, and it's hard to say that he was completely wrong about that. It was at this point that Olav Tryggvason decided that it would perhaps be best to stay away from England for a while, and so he sailed to Norway. Just to remind you, at the time, Norway was ruled by Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson, but he was currently facing a rebellion, and things weren't going too great for the Jarl, in fact, as you may well remember, he was holed up under the floor of the pigsty at his mistress's farm, hiding from the rebels together with his trusted slave. If you listen to the last episode, you already know what happened to Jarl-Håkon Sigurdsson. His trusted slave cut his head off and handed it to Olaf Tryggvason in the hopes of receiving a reward. When he came to conquer Norway, Olaf Tryggvason may have shown up in the Trondheim fjord with only five ships, but those ships were loaded heavy with silver, that he had amassed on his various viking raids. Even though Jarl Håkon's slave didn't get any of that silver, many other key figures in Trondelag did. Once again, we see how important generosity was to building a power base and popularity. Thanks to this generosity, Olav Tryggvason was soon recognized as king in Trondelag. Recognize the pattern here? Pretenders to the Norwegian throne did well by starting in Trendelag, because without this important and rich region, you wouldn't get far. And, if you managed to convince the people of Tröndelag to support you, you had also blocked your opponent from tapping into the the resources of that region. That's exactly what Håkon the Good had done as well. And Jarl Håkon, as well as his king-making grandfather, had been the Jarls of this area. Once he had been declared king of Tröndelag, Olaf Tryggvason travelled around the country collecting recognitions from other regions, all the while spreading silver and the gospel. Olav was eager to win converts for Christ and many Norwegians were willing to be baptized if they got some of that silver Olav was handing out. But it didn't work everywhere. In Rogaland, the people were called to a thing where they were supposed to rubber stamp Olav's kingship and the Christianization of the region. But the people had other plans. They showed up heavily armed and insisted on speaking in defense of their religion. But Olav needn't have worried. A pious legend relates that the chieftains of Rogaland stood up to speak against Christianity one after the other, but when they tried to open their mouths, they all realized that they had lost the ability to speak. So in the end, no one at all at the thing was able to object to the Christianization of Rogaland, and King Olav could force the decision through. In the cases where he couldn't rely on miracles, high-handedness was a favorite tactic of Olav's. For instance when his sister refused to marry the most powerful man in the west of Norway. Olav took her favorite hawk and plucked it. This barely veiled threat got his sister to change her mind and she agreed to the marriage. Olav Tryggvason also wanted to get married, again. Apparently his previous English wife had died, somehow, so Olav proposed to Sigrid, queen in Sweden. She was interested in the prospect and the two met to negotiate marriage. Everything seemed to be going well until Olaf demanded that Sigrid, who was still true to the old gods, be baptized before the wedding. She refused, which enraged the Norwegian king. Olaf Tryggvason shouted that he wouldn't marry a heathen (coughs) female dog and slapped Sigrid in the face. Needless to say, the marriage was off. Sigrid said he'd live to regret it, but Olaf ignored her. Spoiler alert, he shouldn't have. As I'm sure you've realized by now, Christianity was quite important to Olav Tryggvason. He was the second Christian king of Norway, but he was far more successful than Håkon the Good in Christianizing the country. In episode 20, we already talked about how the Icelandic sagas claimed that Olav was ruthless in enforcing Christianity, making the Icelanders abandon the old gods and not shying away from violence to increase the realm of the Prince of Peace. As much as Olav Tryggvason disliked pagans, he really hated men who were into Seid. If you remember back in episode 18, Old Norse religion, I mentioned that it was mostly women who practiced Seid, and that even though we don't know exactly what it was and how it was performed, there seems to have been some kind of sexual element to it. So men who practiced Seid carried a social stigma. So maybe Olaf Tryggvason wasn't just a zealous Christian, but also something of a homophobe. That wouldn't have been altogether uncommon, but his handling of men who were caught practicing Sade stood out in its viciousness. Some of them were burnt alive, others he tied up together and put in an islet at low tide, and then let them drown when the tide rose. But Olaf Tryggvason didn't limit his cruelty to men engaging in pagan magic rituals. Also regular, run-of-the-mill Norwegians, who refused to be baptized, were killed in rather sadistic ways. Some of these stalwart pagans were thrown off high cliffs, Others had snakes stuffed down their throats, and some had burning coals placed on their naked bodies. In Trondheim, Olaf killed a man called Ironbeard, who refused to be baptized. Unfortunately, this particular pagan was a rather powerful man with equally powerful friends. The only way to avoid a rebellion in the important Trondelag region was for Olaf Tryggvason to marry Ironbeard's daughter Gudrun. You might have thought that Gudrun wouldn't have been so keen on spending the rest of her life with her father's killer, and if so, you'd be absolutely correct. Because when uh, Treggvason fell asleep on their wedding night, Gudrun tried to kill him with a knife to avenge her father. But Olav woke up and managed to escape. King Olav not only won souls for Christ with his incessant proselytizing, sometimes he himself stood to gain materially as well. For instance, by killing yet another of his subjects who refused to be baptized by shoving a red-hot iron down his throat, the king could then seize the victim's mighty fine longship called Orman Lange, or the Long Serpent. This ship was famous far and wide for its size and general awesomeness, and it soon became a source of pride and an identifying symbol for the king. Unfortunately for the king, not all those who could identify him by his ship were friends and admirers. Eventually, Olav Tryggvason married yet again, this time to Tyra, a Danish princess. She was the sister of King Sven Forkbeard of Denmark, so in other words, she was the daughter of Harold Bluetooth. In order to shore up the eastern border, Sven Forkbeard had forced his sister to marry a petty king ruling some Slavic people along the southern coast of the Baltic Sea. He might have been a good match from a political point of view, but he was also both old and a pagan, so Tyra ran away and eventually ended up in Norway. Olaf Tryggvason fell in love and married her. They married in the fall and had a lovely winter together. But in the spring Tira started to complain. She wanted some property back from her former husband and she demanded that her new husband go and fetch it for her. Olaf's advisors counseled against it. Such a trip would be far too perilous for the king. Olaf would have to cross the Baltic Sea and sail through the waters controlled by his brother-in-law, Sven Forkbeard, the king of Denmark. And Sven was upset that Olav Tryggvason had married his sister, not to mention that he still bore a grudge against Olav for tricking him out of tons of silver back when they were raiding together in England. It didn't help that Sigrid, the woman Olav Tryggvason had slapped in the face and insulted because she refused to convert to Christianity, had now married the king of Sweden. So even if Olav were to escape the Danes. The Swedes were after him as well. But their warnings fell on deaf ears. Tira shamed Olaf into climbing on board his mighty longship Orman Lange and sail eastward. The expedition actually was a success, at least to begin with. Olav managed to get his wife's stuff back, and in the late summer he and his fleet were on their way back to Norway again. They got as far as Svalder, wherever that is exactly. Because, as usual, the sagas are a little hazy on the geographical details. Wherever it was, three enemies were waiting to ambush Olaf Tryggvason and his fleet at Svalder. The king of Denmark, the king of Sweden, and Erik, the son of Jarl Håkon, who thought he should rule Norway instead of Olaf. They had also brought their fleets. The enemies had a much larger combined fleet than Olaf Tryggvason, so when Olaf's men caught sight of the enemy, they wanted to flee but Olav himself committed his life to God and Ceylon. According to tradition, Olaf is supposed to have said that he wasn't afraid of the Danes or the Swedes, but when he saw Jarl Erik Håkansson and his Norwegian warriors, he grew concerned because they were Norwegians and therefore superior warriors. But by then, it was too late to turn back. The commanders of the ambush were watching the approaching fleet closely, trying to identify Olav Tryggvason's famous longship, Orman Lange, The Danes and the Swedes were impressed by the fine ships in the Norwegian fleet and were convinced that some of the first longships that sailed past them must be the legendary Urmen Lange. They were ready to jump, but the Norwegian Jarl Erik Håkansson knew better, and he convinced them to wait until he caught sight of Olaf Tryggvason's vessel. Then the combined forces of Olaf's enemies attacked. As usual, when a battle is described in the sagas, the fighting was fierce, and in the end only one ship remained, Urman Lange. Olaf Tryggvason was surrounded, but he didn't give up. According to legend, he had a mighty warrior in his retinue called Einar, who was a great archer, and his arrows felled many enemies. But all of a sudden his bow broke in two with a loud cracking sound. King Olaf asked what that noise had been, and Einar replied, Norway slipping from your hands. Defeat was inevitable and not far off. At that point, Olav took his shield and covered himself with it and jumped into the sea. Olav Tryggvason's body was never recovered. His supporters cultivated a hope, later turned into a myth, that the king had actually not drowned, but rather managed to swim ashore somehow. But whether he drowned or not, he never returned to Norway. Jarl Erik Håkansson was the great winner at the Battle of Svalder. He not only got to take over Olaf's impressive longship, Orman Longe, but he also took over as ruler of Norway, running the place in the name of Sven Forkbeard, the King of Denmark. But Jarl Erik was given wide-ranging autonomy because Sven was often preoccupied with other things. Next time, we'll take a closer look at what preoccupied Sven Forkbeard. But before I sign off today, I'd like to answer a few questions that I've received over the last few weeks. The first one isn't so much a question as a comment. It comes from Roger, who'd like to point out that I didn't mention that the Bluetooth technology in your cell phone is, in fact, named after the Danish Viking King Harold Bluetooth. And Roger is 100% right, I did fail to mention this, and it is true that the Bluetooth wireless connection technology was named after the man who united Denmark. Apparently, Jim Kardash, who was working on the Bluetooth technology all the way back in 1997, had just read Franz G. Bengtsson's excellent novel, The Longships. It's a novel set in the Viking Age, and Harold Bluetooth and his uniting Denmark features in it. And since this revolutionary wireless technology connected devices just like Harold Bluetooth connected Danish tribes, Jim thought that Bluetooth would be a suitable name. The Bluetooth logo is also made up of a combination of two runes from the Younger Futhark, that is the alphabet of the Viking Age. It's the runes for H and B, for Herald Bluetooth, that are combined to create the logo. By the way, if you haven't read Franz G. Bengtsson's The Longships, I strongly recommend that you do. I'll add a link on the Facebook page and Twitter. The second listener who's been in touch is Hannes from Sweden. This is also Harold Bluetooth related, as Hannes would like my take on the so-called Kermson disk. For those of you who aren't familiar with this particular artifact, it's a small gold disk with a diameter of about four and a half centimeters. The disk resembles similar objects made at the same time in the East Frankian cultural sphere. Harold Bluetooth is mentioned on the disk, which actually gets its name from Harold's patronym, Gormson, rendered Kermson on the Kermson disk. The disc was found in the middle of the 19th century in a Viking horde discovered in what is now Western Poland, close to the presumed location of the as-of-yet-undiscovered town of Jomsborg. But since the disc didn't seem particularly valuable at at first glance, it ended up in a box of old buttons. And, admittedly, as a button, it is useless, since it doesn't have any holes to fasten it to a garment. The disc remained in that button box until 2014, when a young girl brought the disc to her history teacher to have a look at it. Her teacher wasn't really sure what it was, beyond the fact that it certainly wasn't a useless old button, and she's not the only one who's a little confused. Scholars who have analysed the disc aren't really sure either. One side of the disc is covered with text, and the other has a Latin cross in it, with a dot between each of the four arms of the cross. This image has been found on coins from the same time period. The text is in Latin and has been translated as "Harald Gormson, King of Danes, Scania, Jomsborg, Town of Aldenburg. So clearly it's a valuable object, made of more than 25 grams of gold, referring to Harold Bluetooth, and it was made in a Christian context. But why was it made? What was it used for? No one really knows. Obviously, that hasn't stopped people from launching theories on the subject. Some scholars think it was a gift, possibly made to commemorate Harald's second marriage. Others guess that it was made as a gift to Harald Bluetooth by his German overlords to confirm that they recognized him as their Christian vassal king of Denmark. According to another theory, proposed by the Swedish archaeologist Sven Rosborn, the crimson disk was made after Harald Bluetooth's death in Jomsborg, According to this theory, after Harald's death in the pagan town of Jomsburg, he was brought for temporary burial at a Christian settlement where the disk was eventually discovered. According to this interpretation, the end of the text on the disk should be read Jomsburg in the Bishopric of Aldenburg. Perhaps Christian missionaries to the Danes canonized Harald after his death and made him a local saint. Using kings turned saints in the attempts to spread and strengthen Christianity and by extension the institution of monarchy is known from Norway, Sweden and Denmark where the martyred kings Olav, Eric, and Knut were made saints. So perhaps Harold, who was killed by his rebellious son Sven Forkbeard was made a saint for the same reason already in the late 10th century and this artifact was made to commemorate that fact. The reason we've never heard of Saint Harold might then perhaps be that he couldn't compete with St. Knut, who took the place as Denmark's martyred saintly king some years later. That's an interesting theory, but far from a proven one. If I'd have to interpret the object myself, I'd put my money on a commemorative object given to Harold by Otto to confirm Harald's status as a vassal under the Holy Roman Emperor. But I'm not archaeologist or expert on early medieval art, so I wouldn't wager my life savings on me being right, Luckily, there's a developing story, so hopefully people more qualified than me will weigh in on the subject in years to come. Great question, Hannes. Thank you. We have time for one more question, and it's from Ian, who reached out on Facebook. He wants to know about the importance of Od from the for the Christianization of Iceland. What role, if any, did she play? Well, first of all, some context for any listener who might not be familiar with Odd. According to the sagas, her father was the Norwegian chieftain, Ketil Flatnose, and even though Aud had made a good life for herself in the British Isles, it all came apart after her husband's death. At that time, she decided to take her family, all their possessions, and their slaves, and start a new life on the newly discovered island of Iceland. There, she claimed expansive swaths of land that she then handed out to members of her household, including her freed slaves. The first written records we have about her come from our old friend Ari Thorgilsson, who we talked about in the episode about the settlement of Iceland. He was a descendant of Odd Ketil's daughter and was most likely recording traditions passed down within his family. But he was still doing so just about 200 years after Odd had died, so it's unsure how reliable he is. The same goes for the many sagas that also mention Odd, such as Lantnambabok, Njal Saga, and Erik the Red Saga. But if the sources are to be believed, Odd daughter, also known as Odd the Deep-Minded, had become a Christian in the British Isles and brought the new religion to Iceland. There is no real reason to doubt this, as several Icelanders, as usual, especially in the elites, were early adapters of Christianity. But the conversion of Iceland wasn't brought about by the subgroup within the Icelandic elite that had become Christians early. As we saw when we talked about the Christianization of Iceland, the old religion was still strong on the island more than a century after Odds' death. And what pushed the Icelanders to ditch the old gods in favor of Christ was external pressure applied by the imperious King Olav Tryggvason of Norway. If the process would have been allowed to take its natural course, It's very possible that the Icelanders would gradually have become Christians anyway in a few more generations, but it's impossible to know. There could just as well have been a backlash extinguishing Christianity on the island altogether. Of course, the conversion enforced by Olaf Tryggvason was facilitated by the fact that there already were influential Christians on the island, so it could be argued that Odd's descendants, and by extension she herself, had some part in the Christianization of Iceland. But without King Olaf of Norway, it wouldn't have happened, at least not as early as it did. Thank you, Ian, for that great question. And thank you also to everyone who's taken the time and made the effort to review the podcast or who sent me messages either on Facebook or on Twitter. It's always nice to receive feedback and questions. And thank you to everyone who's purchased my book, Thor, Odin, Loki, and the Old Norse Myths, where I delve a little deeper into Viking Age religion and mythology than I had time to do here on the show. If you haven't already, please consider going to Amazon or Kindle to purchase your very own copy. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. Go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman, S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.